Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 11, Giving a Name to the Remains, Part 6. So we're going to cover a couple of victims today of Coral. The first one starting is Willard Rusty Branch Jr. He was the son of former Houston police officer Rusty Branch and his wife Bonnie. He was 18 years old when he was reported missing by his family in November of 1972. Willard had actually been visiting an aunt in Mount Pleasant, Texas, when she took him and an unidentified male to the highway so that they could hitchhike to Houston. Little is known of what exactly happened here with the second person, but at some point in time, it does seem like they kind of split up. According to Susan Willard's sister, her father actually died of a heart attack while out searching for his son. Susan also talked about the toll losing her brother took on her. At one point in time, she said she was hospitalized. Willard was sexually assaulted, tortured. His hands and feet were tied, and a gag was placed in his mouth, and that was taped. Willard was castrated, and then Coral shot him in the head. The next day, he was buried in the boat shed by Brooks Henley Coral. His penis was buried in a plastic bag beside his body. Sadly, Willard would not be identified until 1985. That would be 12 years after his body was found in the boat shed. It was his sister, Susan, who contacted the medical examiner's office to find out if her brother could possibly be among the unidentified. In an interview with Susan, she stated that in order to identify her brother, she had to go through his body piece by piece. Susan gathered old medical records, dental records, and anything else she could find to help identify the, the remains. When you read his autopsy, this is a very adequate um, description of what she actually had to go through to identify him. At one point in time, Susan was in a room where she had to look at 23 locks of hair and identify out of those 23 locks of hair, pick what closely represented her brother. Um, at the time, there were only four bodies left to identify at the medical examiner's office. Through the records that Susan gave, she was able to bring um, records from the dentist and also a uh, record of an old injury. With that, it actually took another three years once Susan contacted the office and the work began to finally release Willard's body to the family for burial. Um, so sad fact with this family, um, 
when you go through his autopsy reports, they actually kept notes of phone calls and different information um, that came into the medical office from the family. And one of those is that after his body was released to the family, there seemed to be some question of whether or not this was actually uh, Willard's remains. One message from Susan states her mother is going to court to get a court order to have Willard's body exhumed and returned to the medical examiner's office if her phone if her mother's phone calls are not returned and her questions are not can, answered. She is not convinced that this is her son. Also has plans to go to the press with her concerns. Her concerns must have been addressed because Willard's remains remain in his grave. We can certainly understand why his mother would have these concerns, you know, especially with there were like with the boys that were misidentified. Right. Right. So, I mean, you can certainly understand that she wants some certainty that that is her son. And I and I'm not sure quite exactly what question she was looking for. When you do go through this autopsy and the information that Willard's sister brought forward, um, certain things kind of pop out. And I think that maybe she just needed somebody to talk to, to clarify them. But as far as this remains go, the old injury that, um, appeared, uh, there was a clavicle injury on the body that had healed. Um, so Willard at one point in time had been shot in the eye or near the eye with a BB gun. And there actually was a BB that um, had come out of the remains. And then his teeth were excellent. There were no cavities and the left incisor was larger than the right incisor. So the compare, being able to compare all the information that she brought forward, these remains to me seem to be pretty well identified without the process of DNA technology, mm -hmm. you know, that we have nowadays. But I think, you know, communication probably wasn't that great back then. And the mother had asked that the daughter was kind of the spokesperson for the family. But if this was your loved one, you'd want some answers. Certainly. And then, you know, with those facts, you know, the BB gun injury and, you know, the teeth being one larger than the other, those seem to be um something you can more like rely on more the locks of hair to me i don't know that's just that just doesn't seem like something i would trust that much oh i definitely think you you're know? right i mean to trust the locks of hair uh, you know i mean i couldn't pick out my own and, locks and of hair. yeah and you're talking 12 15 years later i yeah. mean come on i don't know that's just weird so um sadly for this family they had gone through a tremendous amount of tragedy um, not only had Willard been abducted and killed, but then, um, his father died, you know, of a broken heart while searching for his son. And then a year after the father died, his brother Douglas died in 1981 too. For, so for Susan and her mother, they had really just gone through a tremendous amount of tragedy. Mm -hmm. So the next victim we're going to cover is Frank Anthony Aguilar. I believe we've touched on him before, Gretchen. Um, isn't he Rhonda's boyfriend? She Rhonda was the girl that was in the house when Coral was killed, correct? Yes. Right. So Frank was uh, Rhonda Williams's uh, girlfriend at the time that he goes missing. And um, yes, Rhonda, you know, 
meets up with Henley and, um, and is in the house on the night that Coral gets shot. So Frank is 18 years old. He's the son of Josephine and Joe Aguilar. Frank was raised by his mother, Josephine. Josephine worked as a hairdresser to support her family. She also had sadly lost one son prior to him, a six-year-old boy named Ronnie, whom she accidentally hit with her car. Frank had a younger sister named Deborah. She gave him the nickname Bubba. So he was last seen on February 24th, 1972, when he went to work at the Long John Silvers in Houston Heights. Said he'd be around, around home around 10 p.m. and he never returned. So there's a little bit back and forth. So Josephine tried very, very hard to figure out what had happened to her son. What comes out is police who tend to start kind of a search, but then they go back and say that they've heard that he was possibly at, um, involved in drugs and um, different types of things. Some of that seems to be coming from Henley because Henley did uh, talk to Rhonda at one point and it was about a month after Frank had disappeared and she was hanging out at the Long John Silvers trying to get information of where Frank could possibly be. And Henley actually came, pulled her aside and said, stop looking for Frank. He was involved with the mob and he had gotten in trouble, mob or mafia. He had gotten in trouble and he was not coming back and then told her he could not say anymore because that it would put Frank in danger. So a little bit of, of seems like Henley trying to get attention off of the disappearance of Frank. Part of that, I've kind of wondered if Henley had always had a crush on Rhonda. And maybe there was some of that going on back and forth. You know, he does end up with having, you know, trying to save Rhonda right. from her abusive father and, so I don't, well, and I mean, I think he even states at some point he was trying to save her from Coral. Right. Yeah. You know, so he definitely had that complex with her. I mean, it does seem to put him in that position where he does kill Coral mm -hmm. because of the threat to Rhonda at that point. Right. And, you know, one of the things about this is the disappearance of frank is tied to brooks and henley apparently both of them convinced frank to go to coral's house to smoke some pot they dropped him off and then they left the thing about it is they dropped him off they knew what was going to happen to him and i just kind of wonder whether or not henley was wanted okay that. It. yeah yeah you know um kind of wanted frank out of the way I don't know. I mean, you can't say for sure, but Henley does go on trial for the killing of Frank. His body's found buried on High Island. In Frank's autopsy report, um, this is the first time that we see um, where you have kind of this division between the uh, communities where you've got Chambers and Jefferson County and Harrison County, Harris County, obviously fighting over who's going to get jurisdiction of the homicide. So, um, but sadly, while trying to identify Frank, medical examiners noticed that they actually had two extra bones, an arm bone and a public, uh, 
pelvic bone. This causes medical examiners to ask law enforcement to return to High Island and dig where Frank and Johnny DeLong were buried. Sadly, nothing else was found. So we don't really have any information. And when they talk about the two, um, the unidentified bodies that remained unidentified, nobody seems to come back and talk about these extra bones. So it, it does make you wonder if, you know, we do have one set of remains that are completely missing. If possibly medical examiners all along have had pieces of that, of those remains, mm -hmm. or if we have another set of unidentified remains out there. Right. Next, we're going to talk about Johnny Ray DeLong and Billie Jean Bulch. Johnny was 16 and Billy was 17. They were hanging out at Billy's house when they left to go to the store to buy some sodas. They disappeared on May 21st, 1972. Johnny was forced to write a letter to his mother stating that he and Billy had gotten jobs in Madisonville. In David Owen Brooks's confession, he stated that at the Schuler house, while both Johnny and Billy were tied down and strapped to boards, Henley said, hey, Johnny, look up. When he did, Henley shot him in the forehead with a 25 caliber automatic. The bullet came out his ear and he raised up. A few minutes later, he said, Wayne, don't. So, you know, just so we can make our listeners kind of clear on that. When we were talking about it, I was like, hold on, say that again. Right. right. And so basically that was a delayed response from Johnny as you know the bullet has kind of yeah malfunctioned his brain basically yeah. so it's kind of this delayed response you know he's he's dying at that point in time and still kind of in that moment where he's you know basically still thinking don't shoot me mm -hmm. yeah um wayne ended up strangling him dean helped henley would go on trial for killing both of them they were buried on High Island. Their remains were covered in August of 1973. Delon's body was identified quickly with dental records. Billy's remains could not be identified through uh, dental records, but were later identified. Billy's parents were Maggie and Billy Bolch. They had seven children. Sadly, Billy and his brother Michael would also be killed by Coral. Michael Anthony Bulch. Michael was on his way to the Barbara when he disappeared. His mother said that she had he had too long of hair and she wanted him to get it cut. In October of 1973, Billy's remains were identified by his parents in what I would say that was the most bizarre and heartbreaking thing that I have ever heard. In an interview with Billy and Michael's parents, the father said, have you ever held your son's teeth in your hands? This is what I had to do in order to identify our sons. The medical examiner's office asked the parents to look at the skulls and teeth of their sons in order to identify them. They had the parents in separate rooms while they brought pieces of clothing and bones in. They brought a chipped tooth and asked if this could be their son's tooth. They brought a belt and asked him to examine the belt and asked them if this could be the belt that their son wore. They showed him the sh skulls that showed gunshot wounds on one. After the identification of the remains, they were released to the parents so that they could finally bury their sons. 
they buried both Billy and Michael in the same casket. Their parents, um, the parents passed away and they would be buried next to them in the same family plot. It wasn't until 2008 when the Harris County attempted to identify the remain, remaining remains of Coral's victims when they found out through genetic testing that a set of unidentified remains would come back belonging to one of the brothers. So the problem was that they had identified the brothers, buried them in 1973, and now they had DNA testing to prove that one of the unidentified remains in the examiner's office was one of the brothers. So then became the process of trying to go through to figure out who was actually buried in the plot um, and which one of the brothers remains that they still actually had. So sadly, they would find that um, it was Michael's remains that were misidentified. He was exhumed. That body was identified as a Stevie Sickman, who we'll get into in just a minute. And um, Michael's remains were then identified and placed back in the casket with his brother and reinterned. You know, it's it's kind of... It's sad because it seems like we're hearing the same story over and over again with the misidentification of, of these remains. And you want to kind of put the blame on, on somebody. The medical examiner's office has occasionally kind of put this blame on the misidentification of, of the parents. Um, and it's, but you, and you kind of want to put it back on the medical examiner's office a little bit, but at the same time, they were left with a daunting task. I mean, that's true. And they had so many young men at that time in their office, right? right. Re waiting to be identified. And so you're always hopeful that they get it right. Right. And it's unfortunate when they get it wrong. It is. But at least they were still able to right that wrong is kind of how I take that back, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it's, it's very disheartening. Um, and you do want to almost have somebody to blame, but I mean, we make mistakes as humans. You know? Well, and I think without DNA testing, the testing that they had available, the best that they could possibly do. And with this, they had the confessions to know that these two were there. They just didn't quite have the right tools. And so with DNA testing, it finally comes along that they now have the right tools. Yeah. And I mean, as a parent too, when you're kind of dealt with that task of identifying your child or your children, you want to get it right because you need the closure, you know? And so how do you, as a parent, do that on just teeth or on a belt or, you know what I mean? Like, that's hard. Well, yeah, I just, I can't imagine. I really can't imagine I, I trying to identify your child based off a skull, mm -hmm. you know? And at that point, they you know, you're talking at this point, they're not even doing the facial reconstructions right. and that type of thing. They did those much later on the unidentified remains, but they weren't doing them at that point. I mean, I just know, like when we were, t were talking about this and I'm in my head thinking like, I'm not sure I'd be able to identify my children by their teeth. Right. You know I mean? You would hope that you could, but when I think about that, I'm like, well, how, I mean, how do you know for certain, I guess? I don't think, I, I don't think you know? possibly could. And these are young men too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of those facial features 
have been changing over the years. Mm-hmm. So, um, just to cover who Stevie Sickman was, Stevie Sickman and Roy Eugene Burton actually went missing in 1972. Henley managed to convince both Roy and Stevie to go to Coral's apartment for a party. Stevie was upset because he had been fighting with his sister and he just wanted a break. Roy had recently lost his job at a shoe store in Northwest Mall. Coral beat Stevie severely before strangling him and Burton was shot. Both were buried in the boat shed. And then again, you know, as we talked about, you know, with the different things that went on, there was facial reconstruction done at one point in time to help identify these remains. And it was through DNA testing that finally, you know, the realization is that um, there had been a mix up. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information on the remaining victims, but we're going to bring them to you in this episode. Richard Hembry and Wally J. Simino were two 14-year-old boys who went to Hamilton Junior High School. It's believed that they disappeared on October 2nd, 1972. The boys were walking home. They were last seen outside a grocery store where they ran into Dean Coral. They got into his white uh, Corvette, and that's kind of the last that we see of them. But Wally call tried to call his mother, but the phone call was disconnected. Um, I'm guessing that police kind of got that through phone records uh, because we don't have a whole lot more on how they know that it was Wally who tried to call his mother. Henley was at the apartment when... Um, Richard and Wally were being tortured. He began to play with Coral's guns, spinning it around and pointing it at the boys. The gun went off, shooting Richard in the mouth and killing him. And then Coral strangled Wally. Richard's death certificate does state that he was um, shot and strangled. His and Wally's body were found in the boat shed. When Wally's mom was contacted um, contacted police to report him missing. They did go out and do an interview and an investigation. They interviewed a few friends who stated that they had heard that he had hitchhiked to Louisiana to visit his father. Thus, the case was closed, classifying him as a missing person. And again, this idea that they were talking to different people and getting this off the street that he had hitchhiked. Some of this, you wonder whether or not these types of rumors were being planted in the community by Brooks or Henley or Coral himself. Sure. The next one is um, James Stanton Draymall. James was known to be the last victim killed by Coral. He lived with his parents in Pasadena, Texas. He went missing five days before Coral was killed. He was also the first boy's body to be recovered from the boat shed. His father worked as a millwright instructor for Lee College. He left his house on a red bike saying he was going to attend a party and he called and told his parents he was staying the night. The bike and his body were found in the boat shed. When you look at several pictures of the boat shed, you actually do see the body in some of those apartments. 
uh, some of those pictures. The bike. The bike, uh -huh. yeah, that was recovered. Um, I think for me, sometimes seeing the pictures of this bike and other different things that are disregarded or tossed kind of in that boat shed haphazardly, it just reminds you of how young these boys were, you know, that they're out living their life, riding around their neighborhoods, which are generally safe neighborhoods on their bikes, going to visit friends, you know, that that was the way you it could be, you know, that, that was, you kind of let your kids go off. You said, when it gets dusk, return home and kids kind of went doing that. And I mean, as children too, your fear factor is not as heightened as when you're an adult right. either, you know, so mm -hmm. you just don't think bad things can happen. Well, know? and remember these kids knew this guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was somebody in from, the neighborhood from locally there. And so it, wouldn't have been unusual for him to, you know, say, Hey, let me give you a ride home or come hang out. And they had partied with him before. Right. Richard Allen Kepner was 19 years old. Richard left home on the evening of November 11th, 1972. He called his fiance from a payphone, and then never returned home. His mother was a divorced single mother of five. Richard worked as a carpenter, a helper, his mother said that he was a sweet boy with a little rebellion in him. In September of 1983, 11 years after Richard left, his family finally find, found out what happened to him. Joanne Kepner identified the skeleton of her son 10 years after his remains had been cover, recovered from High Island Beach. It was not until his mother had heard news stories of Henley's appeal that she contacted police to find out if her son could be a victim. She actually believed that all the victims were identified. So only hearing about the appeal and at that point in time, hearing the press releases that there were still five sets of remains to be identified is at that point when she contacted and said, is it possible that this could be my son? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sadly, you know, as we go along, we find out that each of these individuals had their own story, their own lives, an incredible future for any of them, if it hadn't been for Coral, Brooks, and Henley. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners, so please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.